The little boy stood by the edge of the housing complex. The buildings backed up into a scrubby area of dark woodland here. Some of the kids from the flats liked to play in the woods. Others feared them and whispered darkly about scary things that dwelled within. The nine-year-old boy turned to go back into the building, but a movement from the forest caught his eye. Two figures emerged, two tall men dressed as clowns. One had a bright red wig on his head, the other had a black star painted across his face. The boy froze. Something about the situation was very wrong. Clowns don't live in the woods. And then one of them spoke. Come with us, little boy, he said. We have nice things for you. Come into the woods. He opened his hand to show the boy something, but the youngster had seen enough. He turned and ran. By the time he returned with his mother, the mysterious clowns had gone. The forest at the edge of the estate, once more dark and empty. But they were to return. The estate was outside the town of Greenville, South Carolina. The time was August 2016. Nobody knew it yet, but this bizarre incident was to be the beginning of an epidemic. A clownpocalypse, if you will. And the Greenville sighting was Clown Zero. I'm Kean. Stay tuned for all kinds of weirdness from home and abroad in Wide Atlantic Weird. listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a collection of the best urban legends, unexplained happenings and mysterious sightings from both sides of the Atlantic. A podcast where we believe the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. I'm your host, Kean, and I'm broadcasting from the Wide Atlantic Weird bunker, currently located somewhere in deepest, darkest Essex. In this episode, we'll be talking about the bizarre, scary clown epidemic of 2016. And since there's something of an urban legend vibe to the tale, I'm going to follow it up with an urban legend-tinged fictional story called Devil's Choice. So you've got that to look forward to, if you can make it through the clown part. Tonight's beer is a solid, if unimaginative, choice. It's Brooklyn Lager. I don't have too much to say about this one, really. It comes in baby cans, which is unusual here in the UK, and I like the taste of it. So, happy days. And now, send in the clowns. I'm sorry, that was inevitable. How interesting to cover an anomalous event that actually occurred in very recent times, and one that I followed closely myself at the time. I remember the Greenville story doing the rounds online. Now, at first, I dismissed it as a single, unremarkable event. But as more and more stories showed up about reported sightings of scary clowns from all over the States and then from all over the world, the story triggered my interest. I slowly realised that something rather spectacular was happening. A ridiculous story, boosted by the power of the internet, was spreading like wildfire, becoming a perfect example of a certain kind of mass hysteria. Now, I've seen mass hysteria before firsthand, at least I believe I have. I've spoken about it on my older podcast, Strange Ireland, before, but to briefly recap, I've been personally involved in situations where groups of people living in isolated places came to share a belief in something rather unusual and something often patently false. 
a type of group delusion, if you will. For example, I recall a school group visiting a remote field centre who all became convinced that a strange hunchbacked dwarf was sneaking into their rooms and stealing their things. I worked with another group where both kids and parents came to believe that they could all smell gas in a building that didn't use gas as a source of power. Now, these are small-scale events, but to me, they mirror some of the more dramatic cases of mass hysteria from history. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon in 1944, or the Moving Statues of the Virgin Mary from Ireland in 1985. But what happened in 2016 must surely rank as being one of the most widespread cases of mass hysteria on record. It was quite literally worldwide. And the waters are muddied by the fact that, unlike other kinds of hysteria, clowns are something that are quite possible to fake. Anyone can do it. All they need is a costume. So, from something that began perhaps as a kid's story without any truth behind it, came actual people inspired by the stories to dress up as clowns and make the stories real. Astonishing. Now, there were precedents for this. Greenville was certainly not the first time phantom clowns have menaced communities. In 1981, a spate of phantom clown sightings were reported across Chicago. According to investigator Lauren Coleman, these clowns drove around in a white van trying to lure children into their vehicle. They cruised playgrounds and schoolyards with balloons and sweets. Police raised two community alerts as a result of the reports. This story reminds me of a rumour that was common in my home city of Cork back in the 1990s, when my friend's mothers came to believe that a scary child abductor was driving around in a white van looking to snatch children. Even as a kid I wondered why this guy was using such a recognisable vehicle, especially as everyone seemed to know who he was and that he was driving a white van. In any case, as social media hadn't been invented in 1981, the Chicago clown panic spread rather slowly and never reached the insane levels of the 2016 outbreak. A common idea at the time was that the evil clown idea was floating about in the ether due to the notoriety of serial killer John Wayne Gacy at the tail end of the 1970s. Pennywise from It and the evil clown from Poltergeist both came later. In the end, it must be remembered that despite numerous sightings and police reports, no children were ever harmed and no clowns were ever seen by adults in the 1981 case. Similar clown flaps happened in Chicago again in 1991 and in 2008. And in 2013, a mysterious figure known as the Northampton Clown frequently seen in that UK city standing silently, holding balloons and just weirding people out, was revealed to be a young local filmmaker playing an elaborate prank. In Greenville, South Carolina, things were different. Kids told other kids about the clowns, and the sightings multiplied. They lived in a tumble-down house in the middle of the woods, it was whispered. The clowns were said to bash at the doors of the housing complex with chains by night. And even some of the parents came to believe this. One grown-up woman reported seeing a clown leering at her underneath a tree on the estate. The local sheriff investigated reports that locals had been firing guns within the woods, perhaps on some sort of vigilante clown hunt. Extra security was posted around the buildings, and flyers were posted warning children not to hang around the woods at night. Eventually, the Greenville police were forced to hold a press conference about the damn clowns. 
During this surely hilarious event, a local official apparently warned the evil circus fools, this clowning around has got to stop. And for some reason, in 2016, the world was somehow ready for this weird phenomena, as I often say on this show. And the creepy clown's idea took off in a way it never had before. Clowns were next seen in nearby South Carolina towns, but by October that year, there were sightings from over 20 states and Canadian provinces. There's no question that this craze was driven hugely by the internet and by social media. It's the one key aspect that separates this outbreak from the previous ones. Indeed, the idea spread like a virus from person to person, school to school, nation to nation. Before October was through, clowns had been seen and even videoed in the UK, across Europe and eventually in Ireland too. Now, I had just returned to Cork at the time and a close friend of mine told me he'd spotted some young Scots messing about wearing clown masks on one of the city's main roads. As this was at the height of the hysteria, to this day I'm still surprised that nobody gave them a good clout for engaging in this dangerous activity. The craze was so intense and so ubiquitous that even the corporate world was forced to take note. Many large chain supermarkets pulled clown costumes from their shops. McDonald's decided not to promote Ronald McDonald too heavily for a few months. Here's the thing about a mass hysteria that centres on clowns. Like I said earlier, it's easy to make it real. And so the line becomes incredibly blurred. Are we dealing with an outbreak of belief in a completely fictional boogeyman? I mean, maybe it started that way. But it became clear that after a certain point, there were actual clowns out there perpetuating this hysteria. But were they in any way real creepy clowns? Or were they just pranksters imitating the stories? Certainly, some of these messers paid a price for their yucks. As videos emerged of clowns prowling menacingly around college campuses, carrying chainsaws and baseball bats, anti-clown vigilante mobs emerged. At Pennsylvania University on October 3rd, a mob of literally thousands of students chased three terrified clowns across the quad. I'm legitimately surprised that more people dressed up as clowns weren't seriously hurt during the hysteria, especially in parts of rural America. The Cork clowns were not the worst of the Irish phenomena. On October 13th, a man dressed in a jumpsuit and a clown mask wielding an axe broke into a house in Kildare. A mother was scared out of her wits when his white-gloved hands came in through her window as she was setting her young child to bed. That's creepy. And in Black Rock in Dublin, three chainsaw-wielding clowns promoting a local haunted house attraction accidentally wandered onto a school property, causing terror, mayhem and provoking a call to the Gardaí. They later said they were very sorry. Back in the New World, Creepy clowns created Facebook pages in order to tell schools to expect a visit. They warned that they would enter the schools and attack children. Panic ensued, as you can imagine. In Fairhope, Alabama, the local middle school greeted concerned parent callers with this heartening message. Please rest assured that your students are safe and the school is taking necessary precautions due to rumoured activity. The school perimeter is secured and the police are on campus. This was in response to a Facebook page hosted by someone calling themselves Flomo the Clown, who claimed that he was going to target local schools. 
the police put three schools into lockdown. Shortly after, it was revealed that Flomo was a 22-year-old woman living locally, another prankster. The craze was really intense. It was astonishing living through an anomalous event that began as an internet rumour and then started happening on the streets of your own town, as in my own case. It was like watching fiction become reality, like seeing a meme take off and come to life. Now, given my reading habits, I was reminded, of course, of the various UFO encrypted flaps that have occurred over the years. Were the clowns really any different? What does this say about, for example, the initial flying saucer craze of the 1940s, or the proliferation of Bigfoot reports after the publicity of the Jerry Crew footprints in 1958, and again following the famous Patterson-Gimlin film of 1968? I had seen how an idea, something clearly fictitious, became a reality as it spread from mind to mind. The detail that the clowns actually became physically real as pranksters got involved was not so unique either. After all, the UFO and cryptozoology worlds have long been plagued by hoaxers too. As October 2016 wound on, it felt as if the clown craze was gearing up to some incredible carnival-like finale set to peak inevitably on Halloween night. There was no way October 31st could pass without a big-top extravaganza of clown hysteria, was there? I was on the streets of Cork City that Halloween night. There were plenty of Ghostbusters, Harley Quinns and Heath Ledger Jokers about, but oddly few clowns. I checked my phone for global news. All seemed quiet on the clown front internationally, too. It was as if the phenomena had blown itself out early, like a candle on a circus tent birthday cake. We had already passed through peak clown. So, why clowns? I'm not going to talk about clowns as metaphors for hidden identities or anxieties about the masks we wear on a daily basis. I'm not going to say that a clown is a figure that holds up a mirror to our society because he or she can freely mock it. Look, I'll leave that talk to others, and many have taken on these themes in just about every article you can read about the 2016 clown panic. I am, however, going to mention what I thought this hysteria was truly about. 2016 was, for many people, the beginning of the new populist movement that has since made so many waves on the international scene. It was the year of Trump and Brexit. Having lived in the US during almost the entire presidential campaign, I can say that I often felt as though the entire country was holding its breath at this time. We knew that huge and significant changes were just around the corner. Trump himself represented an almost unimaginable triumph to some, an indescribable horror to many others. Folks suffered from what was termed election fatigue, as though it was naively assumed that the anxieties of living in an unstable-feeling world would end after a candidate was elected. And the wider world looked on in a kind of bemused horror at what the US and the UK were about to do to themselves. That these anxieties would bubble to the surface in some strange way now seems to have been almost inevitable. The fact that both American presidential candidates could and would were seen as somewhat clown-like themselves makes the hysteria's final form seem almost fitting. All in all, I'm surprised we haven't had more similar outbreaks 
with the way the world has been since. But then, I guess that's what conspiracy theories are for, and that's a story for another time. And so, we bring the tale of the 2016 clown panic to a close. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, step right up, for the manifestation of your everyday fears is taking physical form in the woods outside your home, on your Facebook wall, and on your streets. It's time to close the curtain, end the show, and climb back into our tiny car. Next up on this episode of Wide Atlantic Weird is a short fictional story I've put together. This is called The Devil's Choice. It's based on a few memories I have from childhood about choose-your-own-adventure books, in particular the Fighting Fantasy series. If you've read some of the books that I have, you might recognise this one. Uh, If you've been following my Twitter feed, you'll probably see me naming it. Uh, But if you're interested, please do uh, check out the history of those books. It's really a fascinating subject. So, this is The Devil's Choice. From the Reddit feed, r slash 80s nostalgia. The poster, named Spencer Mansion. Do you remember those old choose-your-own-adventure books? The ones where you'd read a page and then be presented with multiple options? For example, if you wish to enter the spooky castle, turn to page 68. If you wish to run away like a coward, turn to page 99. That sort of thing. I have very vivid memories of these from the late 80s and early 90s, when they were already slightly out of date as a publishing phenomena. They would often turn up in charity shops or in libraries. Choose Your Own Adventure was the name of the most popular American series. Now these were pretty rare in Ireland when I was a kid, and I only ever came across them once or twice ever. They were very simplistic and were clearly aimed at young kids. The more interesting series were usually the British ones, such as the fighting fantasy books, as these were almost like simple role-playing games. They had far more complex rules. It wasn't just about following the story and choosing options. You had to roll dice to create your own character and keep track of your character's statistics. You usually had to monitor your character's health and money and what equipment they were carrying. And when they encountered enemy characters, orcs and goblins and other monsters, you rolled the dice again to simulate the combat. Your character could die in battle or run out of food or fall off a cliff and die a grisly death. These books were definitely aimed at a teenage audience. Despite this complexity, most of these British series were not that interesting narratively speaking. They were heavily influenced by Tolkien and almost all of them took place in a kind of generic fantasy land populated by dwarves and dragons and hobbits, all of which behaved in pretty stereotypical ways. The story was always kill the wizard, get the treasure, save the kingdom, and character development was effectively nil. They were, after all, a kind of precursor to modern video games, which, for the most part, are not particularly noted for their storytelling either, even today. Anyway, as I write now, I'm wondering if anybody remembers a particular book of this type that's haunted me for years. A book that was quite different. I seem to have picked it up somewhere, I'm pretty sure at a school book fair, if those still exist, sometime in the early 90s. I don't recall the name of the series exactly, but it was a series similar to Fighting Fantasy for sure, as there was dice rolling and stats to keep track of. The name? It was something like Hell's Deep, 
though I'm aware that phrase doesn't really mean anything and is probably a misremembered fragment of Tolkien that my brain seized upon long ago. Anyway, that's all I have to go on. The cover was glossy and featured a spooky old house. Not the kind of kid-friendly haunted house you often get in books of this kind, with friendly, smiling ghosts popping out of a well-kept Victorian mansion. No, this house was a dark, dingy, unpleasant thing, hiding among the shadows of a nightmare forest. The pencil work included excessive shading and cross-hatching, giving it the feel of a medieval woodcut. The house had gambrel roofs and black Tudor beams, a mishmash of architecture that seemed to belong to no particular time or place. It seemed to be a part of the forest itself, covered in sickly green moss and looking as if its very walls were soft, rotten, almost like diseased flesh, as though if you were to touch them they would yield and crumble. There were no people or figures of any kind in the image. Bare trees grasped at the roof of the decrepit mansion. Deep shadowed pools of black gathered on porches within tower windows between the trees. There was a palpable sense of loneliness. As for the adventure itself, well, I remember quite a bit about it. I was excited to crack into the game, being as I'd always had a fascination with both adventure game books and haunted house stories. After dinner, on a bleak November evening, I sequestered myself in a quiet part of the family home, sharpened some pencils and gathered my dice to begin. Hell's Deep Unlike most game books, this one started without giving you any backstory. That always weirded me out. I was told to roll some basic stats, skill, stamina, luck, but also an extra new stat, sanity. The text warned that I would be encountering truths that would threaten to unmoor my sanity. Whatever, I had never truly been scared by a book before, even though even at that age I read a lot of horror. So I took this new gameplay mechanic in my stride. The opening stage of the game, however, quickly unsettled me. My character, whoever they were, wandered without explanation through the forest shown on the cover. The setting appeared to be the generic Tolkien-like fantasy world I was used to from these books. Occasionally I met other characters, NPCs as gamers call them, dwarves, elves, the usual, except that I never seemed to have to fight them. There was never an option to, an oddity in these usually bloodthirsty books. Not that I'd really wanted to anyway. The NPCs were uniformly sad and morose. I could ask them questions, but their answers were brief and cryptic. They were described as being depressed with downcast eyes and broken spirits. Clearly something was wrong in this fantasy land. I presumed this was all to gear me up to fight whatever evil adversary the author had in mind. Still, the elf who walked endlessly in circles around her tiny hut, ignoring my attempts to speak to her, got to me a little bit, as did the dwarf who sat by the bank of a little stream, quietly sobbing. In-game, at least, nothing threatened my sanity. Somewhere within this forest was the house from the cover. A curious thing I discovered by playing the game multiple times over several days was that the geography of the forest was largely consistent, except for the location of the house. Regardless of which direction I travelled through the woods, the house would always appear after I had been playing for a certain period of time. Now, given the limited mechanics of choose-your-own-way books, this isn't really a difficult thing to do. After all, the author had only to link back to the paragraph where the house first appears, and could do this from several locations. But 
Conceptually, it created a strange dreaminess, a sense of the uncanny. I remember trying to see how much of the forest I could explore before being railroaded to the house, partly out of interest, but partly because I genuinely didn't like going into the house. There was an internal illustration on the page where you reached the house. If anything, it was even worse than the cover. It was black and white, like all the interior artwork, and the great oak door yawned open like a huge black mouth. Everything, the shadows, the knots in the wood, was drawn to suggest that an army of imps or other evil minions surrounded you, and yet you were completely alone. And once I entered, a new mechanic came into play. Time. The book told you what time of the evening it was, and as you took certain actions within the house, time started ticking down towards midnight. What happened at midnight, I didn't know, except that I had to make a note that when it did happen, I would turn to 66. Inside, the house felt decidedly Tudor era. There was wood panelling, grand libraries, elaborate candle chandeliers. There were other characters in the house with me, just two actually, and they were human, dressed in oldie-worldy finery. They smoked cigars and drank brandy, but if I tried to talk to them, they spoke back to me in gibberish. Knowing a thing or two about game books, I presumed that this fake language was probably a code, and that later on I might achieve the means of deciphering their speech. In the more sophisticated game books, it would be necessary to crack such a code in order to win. This part of the book was strange. I was able to explore the house, more or less unopposed by these characters. I got the feeling that the book was structured as one big puzzle. It isn't common in game books to be able to backtrack. It's extraordinarily difficult to write them so. But Hell's Deep allowed me to enter and re-enter rooms, sometimes from different entrances, and sometimes while keeping tabs on what encounters had already occurred within them. Sometimes it was even able to do this state tracking without clumsily asking me, have you been in this room before? Which made me wonder how the book was remembering my actions. The house felt logically laid out. Indeed, I remember drawing maps of it as I explored. Though the house was loaded with traditionally spooky haunted house encounters, zombies, skeletons, etc., these felt oddly out of touch with the unsettling atmosphere the book had been building up. They were easy combats against low-level adversaries. I felt as though the book were somehow taking it easy on me. Sure enough, each of these encounters caused the time score to increase, and as it got closer to midnight, things started to become strange. Occasionally, after the 11 o'clock time had been triggered, I would enter a room, solve a puzzle or find an item, and then turn to leave, only to find that there was a figure standing by the door. A figure dressed in the flowing robes of a cult member with a hood. These figures stood still, didn't attack or speak, but if you chose to approach them, you would see that they had no face. That cost a few sanity points. During that last hour, the game tried to kill me in increasingly strange ways. There was a room on the ground floor with a wardrobe I could walk into, only to find a corridor beyond. To go left, turn to 76. To go right, turn to 99. Only the corridor was an infinite loop of forking pathways. It was only after I noticed that the same few paragraph numbers were cycling again and again that I realised I was never going to escape the house this way. I threw down the book, dejected. In the kitchen, 
there was a dead end where you got trapped in a section of the book from which there was no escape. A werewolf chef bit you, after which you became a werewolf also. The unsettling thing was how you were still given lots of options after this point, even though careful exploring revealed that there was literally no way to escape the kitchen alive. In one memorable ending, a literal sacrificial lamb was brought into the kitchen, accompanied by two hooded figures, and regardless which option I took, my newfound animal instincts forced me to brutally eviscerate the poor beast. The book made it clear that after this bloody act, my fate was sealed, and I was to be a creature of instinct and viciousness forever. My adventure was over. Another time, the house fooled me during the final hour by presenting an option in the dining room that had been unavailable earlier in the night. A secret switch, disguised as a candlestick next to the mantelpiece, became clear. Pulling it opened a secret compartment that had a piece of paper containing the password Asmodeus. Later, downstairs in the cavernous cellar underneath the house, one of the faceless hooded figures asked me for a password. I was delighted. I had explored every inch of the house, had discovered no other ways forward, and was convinced that this was how to progress. I used the password Asmodeus. The book had a clever system whereby you counted the alphabetic numbers of passwords to turn them into the correct paragraph number. The cult member opened a secret door, and the book allowed me to proceed. I was elated, until the stony corridor around me grew larger and larger, or in fact was I growing smaller and smaller. Wool sprouted from my back, some enchantment had turned me into an animal. Two guards emerged from behind me and led me to a kitchen, where a huge, slavering wolf-man awaited me, triggering my first ever existential crisis. Had I just eaten myself? Had I been devoured by an alternate universe version of myself? As you can imagine, this scene haunted me for years. I took it that the Asmodeus Code was a red herring. The book was sophisticated enough to have different levels of clues, and somewhere I had missed the correct one. Eventually I grew frustrated, prowling around this mostly empty house, always feeling that I had missed something important, meticulously trying every option but finding only more disturbing ways to die, took its toll. The house sat in my mind as a bleak, oppressive presence. I was unable to escape from its walls. And unlike the stock spookhouse enemies, the satanic cultists seemed particularly sinister. Remember, this was when the so-called satanic panic was in full swing. People really believed that there were conspiracies of Satanists operating everywhere, abusing and murdering children. Whoever thought that this was suitable fodder for a kid's book? Finally, I hit the last-ditch technique. I trawled through every paragraph in the book in sequence, hoping to stumble across the right one. It was a long, mind-numbing process that spoiled the whole book, but I was determined to crack the puzzle right open. A strange piece of text caught my eye. True escape can never be found by following the rules, it said. Was this it? I read on. A man in a flowing purple robe, wearing a goat head upon his shoulders, was speaking to me, or to my character at least. He continued, The great Lord rewards those who help themselves. You alone shall live to see the outside world. Spare no thought for your other incarnations stuck on their various roads to ruin. And then there was an image that I swear had not been there before. 
At least, with all my previous flipping through the book, it had never caught my eye, which seemed impossible. There, in all his 80s black-and-white horribleness, the goat-headed cult leader stretched his hand out towards a door that was just barely open, behind which flames leaped. And in the text, he used my name. My actual name. I had some weird dreams that night, and when I awoke, I was unsure whether this last part had been merely one of them. I was genuinely too afraid to open the book again for several days, and when I found myself able to read it, I couldn't find the shocking final paragraph, or the image of the cult leader with his dead skull eyes. I lost the book sometime in the years before the internet became a thing. It probably happened when my family moved house. Now I can't remember the name of the book, it's been impossible for me to track it down, or even prove that it existed. May your stamina never fail. Yours, Spencer Mansion. You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and you can even chat to us on Twitter where we're at Strange Ireland. We use it occasionally. If anything weird has ever happened to you, we'd love to hear about it, so please get in touch. So from the bunker, somewhere in the borderlands, thanks for listening. <laughs>